begin this morning by reading a passage from the book of Acts. You're welcome to follow along with me if you want to. You can close your eyes, put up your feet, you can lay down the front aisle if you want. Concentrate on this passage of scripture from Acts chapter 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Father, as we look into your word this morning, we ask that it would really make an impression and an impact on our lives and in our hearts. And so we give ourselves to you today, open and laid bare. May your word affect us, inspire us, and motivate us to apply it the way that your Holy Spirit desires. For we seek his help in this. For Jesus' sake, amen. So in the weeks leading up to Holy Week and Easter, as I prepared my messages for that weekend last weekend, I was already thinking about what I would be preaching today and during the weeks that follow. See, you kind of have to do that. And yes, it is exhausting. And as I contemplated the aftermath of the resurrection and what Jesus' disciples must have been thinking, the phrase that kept flashing in my mind over and over and over again was this, after last week's celebration, what now? What are we supposed to do now? It's interesting that when I finally decided I would follow up that celebration of Christ's resurrection with a series on our commission to carry the great news of what Easter is all about to others, that immediately after last Sunday, my email began to light up with blogs and articles and ministry advertisements that contained the very same or similar words that I was contemplating. Easter is over. Now what? 
Well, God has a way of confirming the Holy Spirit's leading, doesn't he? And prompting. It's a fairly well-known story now, but in his game-changing book, which affected me quite radically back in the day, uh, a book entitled Lifestyle Evangelism, Joe Aldrich introduces this topic with a bit of speculative imagery, and he writes, he says, there is a legend which recounts the return of Jesus to glory after his time on earth. Even in heaven, he bore the marks of his earthly pilgrimage with its cruel cross and shameful death. And the angel Gabriel approached him and said, Master, you must have suffered terribly for the men down there. I did, he said. And, continued Gabriel, do they, do they all know about how you love them and what you did for them? Oh, no, said Jesus, not yet. They don't all know. Right now, only a handful of people in Palestine know. Gabriel was perplexed. He says, well, then what have you done, he asked, to let everyone know about your love for them? Jesus said, well, I've asked Peter and James and John and a few more friends to tell other people about me. Those who are told will in turn tell still other people about me and my story will be spread to the farthest reaches of the globe. Ultimately, all of mankind will have heard about my life and what I have done. Gabriel furrowed his eyebrows, and if angels have eyebrows... Frowned and he looked rather skeptical, and he, he knew all too well what poor stuff men on earth were made of. Yes, he said, but what if, what if Peter and James and John grow weary? What if the people who come after them forget? What if way down in the 21st century, People just don't tell others about you anymore. Haven't you made any other plans? And Jesus answered, I haven't made any other plans. I'm counting on them. Friends, 21 centuries later, there's still no other plan. No plan B. We're it, you and me. He's still counting on us. High on God's priority list is the spreading of the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's us, all of us. Through his sinless life on earth, his selfless death on the cross, and his victorious resurrection from the grave, we can be forgiven for our sins. By the grace of God and through faith in Jesus, every single one of us can have the guarantee of eternal life in heaven, which results in a changed life here on earth. The disciples understood the extreme importance of that message and their part in the mission by devoting themselves to reaching their world. And my question this morning as I begin this next series is, have we? And do we understand it as well as they did? How much of a priority have we personally given it? How much of a priority have you personally given it? 
Over the next few weeks, we're going to dive into the age-old but desperately critical idea of cultivating a lifestyle tailored to spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through the power of his God-breathed word, coupled with some practical tools and personal stories, my hope is that you and I will emerge better trained and more personally equipped to become Christ followers that are contagious. The kind who have not only caught the virus of Christ's unconditional soul-saving love, but are compelled to infect others with it as well. The moment you came to Christ, if you are in Christ, you became a carrier. You became a carrier of that life-changing message. And not only life-changing, but get this, life-saving I'm praying that over the next few weeks, God's going to use these messages to help you and I become more effective and more excited carriers of that message. So we're going to learn all kinds of things together. It's going to be a little different than most series that uh, you've been accustomed to. This is really about spiritual training for evangelism. Amen? Amen. Basic stuff. It's good to go over the basic stuff, isn't it? Back when I was a soccer coach... The guys on the team, they never wanted to go over the basic stuff of passing the ball and dribbling the ball and doing that kind of thing and running. No, no, they wanted to do all the fancy schmancy stuff. But you know what? The reason the guys that can do the fancy schmancy stuff on the professional teams is because they go over and over and over and over again the basics of dribbling and passing and running and shooting. We need that. We need that. So we're going to employ some things in this, in this series of a course that I taught really a, many, many, many years ago in small groups and even once in a large church setting. The principles are very, very easily applied in any context throughout the empowering guidance of the Holy Spirit. So I'm praying that it's going to bear much spiritual fruit. Amen. So you're going to learn about your evangelistic style, how God wired you up, the making of a bridge builder, how to to have conversations with people, to prepare your testimony to give to people, to tell the story of the gospel if you don't know how to do that already, and, and invite people to cross the line. We're going to talk about you and I staying in line, speaking the truth in love. You're going to hear testimonies from different people from this church and hear stories about how God has dramatically worked in people's lives to bring them to Christ. Mostly, I pray that we're going to be infused with a desire to become more contagious carriers of the gospel to the world in which we live. Amen? Because after Easter, that is what now? That's what the disciples did. That's what we need to do. So, I hope that the biggest realization that we will all hopefully come to is that you don't have to travel across the globe in order to do evangelism, my friends, or or participate in it. Most of the time, all you have to do is walk across the room. There is literally nothing that comes close to the thrill and joy of helping someone find God's love and forgiveness and cross that line of faith. Absolutely nothing. 
There's nothing in the world that compares with knowing that your efforts in obedience to Christ have played a part in someone's eternal destiny. It's well beyond any experience that you can imagine, beyond the fleeting but momentary exhilaration of landing a trophy fish or scoring a winning goal or even receiving an Olympic gold medal. It endures and it is remembered in eternity when you watch someone's eyes light up and their heart get changed for Christ. But the most important thing you need to know is that unlike the medal winners in athletic competitions and the famous Bass Pro fishermen and all of this, the joy of helping win a soul to Christ is not an experience reserved for the privileged few. But it's promised to the church at large. Then the question, it begs the question, why are so few people regularly engaged in it? Uh, look on the internet, look up the statistics about how many evangelicals, so-called evangelicals, actually engage in sharing their faith with people on a regular basis. There are all kinds of reasons why most people aren't effectively sharing their faith in a contagious way. One writer suggested a few. I mean, if you go on, the, the, the articles are endless on this. But let me give you a couple of reasons here that uh, one writer suggests. Excessive relational demands cripple our relational capacities, okay? In other words, there's just too many people and we get overwhelmed with the idea. Not only that, but there are too many expectations that we put on ourselves. Like we have to save everybody. Like we have to save anybody. We don't. That's God's work. Secondly, is a, a ridiculous pace of life, erratic pace of life. It's just too fast and complicated. Your life complicated and fast? How about exposure to unhealthy models of evangelism? We've all had that before, haven't we? There's also cultural barriers, existing, real, real, not just imagined, and blatant theological heresy. Those things short-circuit our evangelistic effectiveness. And then there's this imbalance, this extreme disconnect between our walk and our talk. That's a big one. See, because we must be good news to people before we can share the good news with them, credibly. And complicating the matter are four key factors, according to George Barna of the Barna Research Group, a national research organization that specializes in measuring the attitudes of evangelical Christians. He says, according to him, he says, most Christians, number one, are ignorant of their own faith, and because of that, are unwilling to enter into a conversation with a non-Christian about the matters of faith. That's number one. Number two, most Christians don't have a passion for evangelism. They're not even considering doing it. Right? They'd rather sit and watch it than actually go out and do it. Number three, most churches don't offer evangelistic training. And number four, most Christians do not have a deep enough relationship with non-Christians to be able to relate to them. And yet, you know what the mood of the country is? The mood of the country today is such that if Christians compellingly presented what Christ has to offer, they would find many people willing to listen. The reasons are very clear 
Because research has shown, Barna says, that there is a prolific search for meaning and purpose in today's society. There is a renewed search for values in a society that has really downplayed what is really valuable. And there's a general dissatisfaction and discomfort with what people are experiencing in their lives today. Have you noticed that? We have everything available to us in this country, and yet people are just not happy. That's just a small sampling of the reasons of our, our effectiveness may be stunted, but I suggest to you that the number one reason for most people is the fear that they can't do it. They feel as if they're not qualified enough. They're confused about what evangelism is and how it's supposed to be done, and frankly, most people aren't willing to take the step fear of what people might think of them. But here's the bottom line. We become spiritually contagious in our character when we become biblically convinced of our call. I say that again? We become spiritually contagious in our character when we become biblically convinced of our call. You know what our call is? To make disciples. Matthew chapter 28, very familiar passage of Scripture. Verses 18 through 20. Jesus came up and he spoke to them and he said to them, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you. I'll be with you, even to the end of the age. Has the end of the age come yet? Is Jesus still with us? Well, there you go. Inherent in the verb is the concept here of relationship. You know what the verb is here in this context? It's not go. It's make disciples. Literally, it's saying as you're going, make disciples. It's assumed you're going to be going somewhere. Unless you're just sitting home and playing video games. And that, by the way, is a deterrent to evangelism. Making disciples demands that we have some kind of relationship to people, doesn't it? And they, and they with us. And it also demands that we help them attain a growing relationship with Christ. Therefore, the essence of effective evangelism is, say it, relationship. Amen? It's a relationship to God and a relationship with others. Our Christianity becomes contagious when our confusion begins to clear in this area. So in the next few minutes, I just want to try to clear up a little confusion about this whole idea of relationship in evangelism. How? By doing the following. I'm going to describe to you what relational evangelism is not by identifying the necessary components of it, by revisiting the biblical basis for it, and then by starting to identify people You're going to do this. Of the relationships God may be leading you to build upon. Because if our Christianity becomes contagious when our confusion begins to clear, then the first thing we need to do is expose the misconceptions about evangelism. So people don't even like the word, the term. Because we approach this idea of evangelism with a certain amount of fear and trepidation, don't we? 
partially because of the negative misconceptions people have about people who do do evangelism, namely evangelists. You want to be known as an evangelist? Let's start with a simple example to prove the point using various professions in our society. Fair or not, there are certain professions that have stereotypically been labeled with a negative reputation. Am I right? No malice is intended here, but the examples are instructive. For instance, what do you think of when you hear the names of these professions? Politicians, used car salesmen, lawyers, insurance sales representatives. Now, again, no malice is intended here, but there are stereotypical thoughts that people have when you hear those terms. Okay, let's move it ahead now. What comes to your mind when you hear the term evangelist? What do you, what do you think of? Some of those negative perceptions people have associated with the term, things like showmanship, fakery, greedy, they yell, they point the finger, they're obnoxious, they're self-righteous, they're hypocritical, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And the list goes on and on. But here's an interesting consideration. Is that what people thought of when they encountered Jesus? You think that's what they thought of? Was Jesus an evangelist? Now, what are some of the positive traits associated with that term? Well, many people immediately think of who? Billy Graham. Likely the most recognized evangelist in recent U.S. history. When we think of this aspect of evangelism, we think in terms of articulate, theologically astute, persuasive, extroverted, bold, unashamed, concerned about people's souls. Not a bad list, huh? But who wouldn't want to be all those things? How many of us are? I don't see any hands out there. You see, we need to get past these negative stereotypes of evangelism for sure, but to be obnoxious and pushy and self-righteous does not argue for a contagious faith. But more important is that most of us need to get past some of the positive but nevertheless misconceived stereotypes of what it means to be evangelical. We don't have to be extroverted or incredibly articulate. I think of somebody that we just played a video clip uh, of a few weeks ago, David Ring. He can hardly even talk, and yet he's been so fruitful in his life in sharing the faith and watching people come to Christ. So we don't have to be articulate. You don't have to be super knowledgeable. Any child that knows Jesus can do it. You don't have to be high profile to do it. We don't have to have the talent or the audience of a Billy Graham or someone like that. In fact, there are likely all kinds of people in your little sphere of reference who couldn't even relate to Billy Graham, but who do relate to you. Sociologists say that even the most introverted of persons will influence an average of 10 thousand other people during his or her lifetime. You realize that? 
to be the most introverted person in the world and influence at least 10,000 people before you die. Well, that's a lot of influence, isn't it? The point is that to reach people effectively for Christ, you don't have to have accomplished something great. You don't have to be someone you're not. You, you need to be the person God uniquely made you to be and spiritually empowered you to be. When Jesus chose the 12, he didn't look for extraordinary men, but ordinary men who became extraordinary in their faith as they allowed the Spirit to mold them and use them for Christ. The great missionary Hudson Taylor said this. He said, all of God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. Get that? Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 says this about Jesus. It says, and he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him and he appointed 12 so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. A couple things you need to underline in that passage. He appointed 12 so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Acts chapter 4 and verse 13 says this in the New Living Translation, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. For they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. That's the thing to underline there. Men who had been with Jesus. They didn't need any special training. They just were guys that had a relationship with Christ. Listen, my friends, my Christian friends, when God made you and he gave you his spirit, he had a kingdom purpose in mind for you. That's not just something we say up here. From the pulpit. This is reality and truth. He knew what he was doing, didn't he? He gave you the personality you have for a specific reason to spiritually impact the people around you and by placing yourself under his leadership. If you don't do it, who will? If you don't affect the people that are around you, who's going to do it? God doesn't have a plan B. He will send people to, to them if he wants them to be saved, but he wants you to affect the people around you. Amen? Get past the misconceptions. Remold your thinking so that when you hear the word evangelism, you don't think of Billy Graham. Instead, you think of what God is doing with you day in and day out. That's what you should think about when you hear that term, evangelist. What you're doing day in and day out around your office and in your family, with your friends, with your personal acquaintances, our Christianity becomes contagious when our confusion is cleared up and the misconceptions about evangelism are exposed. So it's not enough to simply expose those personal misconceptions, but secondly, we need to employ the biblical prescription for evangelism. 
So what does effective evangelism actually look like in the scriptures? What are the essential elements involved? Well, first of all, it's authentic. It's authentic. It's got to be real. It's not just a program. It's not just a project. It's just not something that you do. Effectiveness in sharing the gospel flows out of a genuine personal relationship with a living Christ. Amen? It's his love in us that overflows and spills out onto others. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But friends, as Howard Hendricks used to say, you cannot impart what you do not possess. In other words, the truth of Christianity will be demonstrated by your radically transformed life. One that's driven by the love of Christ and compelled to respond to his lordship. In a response to a blog I was reading this week in which the author Tom Rayner listed nine reasons Christians don't evangelize, one man, he listed himself as Tony A., he wrote these words. They just struck me. It hit me hard. He says, in my opinion, after reading all these nine reasons why, This guy says, in my opinion, the primary reason Christians today do not witness is that we cannot witness about that which we have not witnessed and are not witnessing. Say that again. The primary reason Christians today do not witness is that we cannot witness about that which we have not witnessed and are not witnessing. The reason I believe that Christians, he says, do not do evangelism is because we have been doing evangelism. In other words, I'm not an evangelist by gifting, he says, but I love sharing the gospel because I love what the gospel has done in me. In my thinking, evangelism flows out of first, who I now am in Christ, and second, whose I am. I share out of my personal experience, he says, with the gospel in my life. I have since rejected the mechanical means that we have long labeled doing evangelism. Now, I focus on living out my identity in Christ and engage in natural conversations with folks about what Christ has done and is doing in my life. For me, it must be as natural as recommending a local eatery. How many of you have eaten out at a restaurant and then told all your friends about it? That's what he's talking about. I cannot bear witness, he says, to something I have not personally experienced. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Christ tells the disciples that once they have received the Holy Spirit, that that they would, quote, you will be my witnesses. He didn't say anything about doing witnessing. He didn't say we were to do witnessing. He says we were to be his witnesses. You agree with that? You can't be a witness if you're not into relating with Christ on a regular basis. If something else has got your attention besides Jesus, you're going to have nothing to share with people except where to go out to eat. What new Netflix program you just watched. Francis of Assisi has been attributed with this statement, which kind of drives me up the wall, but I'll say it anyway. 
Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. You've heard that before, right? What was he actually saying? He's saying, live your life as if theirs depended on it. Live like Christ, he's saying. He's not saying don't preach. He's saying make sure your life preaches first before you open your mouth. There is no greater advertisement for the power of the gospel than a truly transformed life. Is that right? Matthew 5, verse 19 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. John chapter 15 and verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Verse 8, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. The first thing about evangelism is that it's authentic. Number two, it's natural. It's natural. In other words, effective relational evangelism reflects our own unique personality and design. Don't try to be somebody you're not. When we allow the Holy Spirit to use who we are and not some prepackaged Christian caricature, it puts other people at ease, doesn't it? And it puts you at ease. Why? Because it fits us. It fits us like a glove. And it lends credence to the reality of our faith because it's been processed through who we are, not somebody else. People see it as something worth looking into. Why? Because we're excited about it. If you're just doing it and saying the words and you're not excited about Jesus, why would anybody want it? The next time we'll study in detail some of those different styles of evangelism we may have and how they are modeled in Scripture. I've done character studies on each of the disciples and have come to learn that God powerfully used each of their unique personalities and backgrounds to influence the world for Christ in ways that the others might not have. There's no one set model of evangelism. The criteria is our Nearness to Jesus Christ. Plain and simple. Before we will ever be truly effective, each of us needs to learn what our natural style of evangelism is. Thirdly, it's personal. It's personal. G.K. Chesterton once said that a man can no more possess a private religion than he can possess a private sun or moon. It's available to everybody. And it's personal. There are two approaches to reaching people who are far from God. There's personal and there's impersonal, right? I mean, there's not much in between there. People have grown increasingly immune to and even annoyed with the many less personal methods of communicating the gospel out there. Things like tracts and Christian television and bumper stickers and T-shirts and Facebook memes, etc., etc., etc. Sometimes these things have an adverse effect on people. People are, however, almost always open to talking to a personal friend. Let me ask you something. What do you do when you need help 
with an important decision that you're facing in a personal crisis. What do you do? Do you turn to flyers? Do you go try to find billboards that might have messages on them for you? Slogans, do you keep repeating slogans in your head? Not on your life. You know what you do? You pick up your cell phone and you phone a friend, don't you? You call a friend, someone you trust. And if that is true of us, how true do you think it is of the non-believing seekers that we know? Don't you think that they want a personal friend that they can trust, that they can call in their times of crisis and need? They usually don't know, don't want to talk about personal issues and spiritual needs with just anybody. They want a friend. They want someone that cares about them. Friends, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, say it, son. He didn't say God so loved the world that he gave a text. That he, that he sent out a text. He gave his only begotten son, not a videotaped image of his son. See, that's as personal as it gets that God gave us his son. God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ that he might make eye contact with people. Amen? He took on a body like ours so he could shake their hands and he could touch their hurts and he could feel their pain and he could love them face to face. He died a physical death so that people would know that he knows what it's like to be under the weight of sin on this earth. Not his sin, but ours. And you see, a sacrificed animal wasn't enough for God. It didn't cut it. No pun intended. It was too impersonal. So, what did he do? God himself became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as that of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. Right? And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how personal it was. God's own pattern of bringing the good news was personal. Ours needs to be too. Next, it's verbal. It's verbal. Here's, another, here's the other side of Francis of Assisi's statement. Relational evangelism is more than just forming friendships and hoping that someone notices that our lives are different. They can't figure it out for themselves. They need to hear the words of the gospel, don't they? They do. No one's life, my friends, is good enough to stand alone as the illustration of the gospel. There was only one person in history whose life was good enough for that. Somewhere along the line, we must give them a verbal message of Jesus because the gospel is all about him. It's all about Jesus. Romans chapter 10, very familiar verse. Verses 14 and 17. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? So faith comes from hearing, and that hearing 
is by the word of Christ or the good news of Christ. We not only have to live the gospel, but we need to explain it. In, in the course of this series, you're going to learn how to recognize and take the opportunities to initiate spiritual conversations and to clearly explain those biblical truths. I hope you learn that. Next, it's process-oriented. Evangelism is process-oriented. Relational evangelism is more process-oriented than it is event-oriented. Sometimes people need time to work through the information and to see God at work. It's rare that people hear the message for the first time and commit to it. Sometimes it requires tons of patience on our part and loads and loads and loads of prayer. I know this. I know this for a fact. We have people in this church that their wives prayed for for years and years and years before they came to Christ. In fact, I'm thinking of a person who's, well, I won't, I won't mention their name, but they know who they are. Wife, the wives never give up praying for their husbands in this regard. It's process sometimes oriented. Recognizing this process orientation nature of evangelism does not mean that there is no urgency involved, by the way. People need to know that eternity hangs in the balance. But we also need to remember that God, the Holy Spirit, is the power source behind it all, right? It's not us. It's not our words. It's the Holy Spirit using God's word. The Holy Spirit is the progenitor of spiritual fruit, not you and me. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 6 and 7 says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth, right? So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. John chapter 4, following his conversation with the woman at the well, Jesus says to his disciples, do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. These scriptures point further to the fact that relational evangelism is not only process-oriented, but it's team-oriented. How many of you knew that? It's team-oriented. That kind of relieves the pressure from you, doesn't it? My salvation came through, my father-in-law led me. He closed the door on it for me, led me across that line. But you know what? My wife in her life, in her words, was witnessing to me nine months before he told me about the gospel and my need of it. And then all kinds of other people before that, after I came to faith in Christ, I realized that there were a whole slew of people. My wife went to a, my wife got saved nine months before I did, and she went, she had a Bible study in our house while I was out on the road doing music in bars for nine months. Her and her lady friends were praying for me. I didn't know that. I would have been pretty ticked off, probably, if I came home and found that out. <laughs> after I got Saved, and I came to Christ. I remember walking in one night after a gig on the road. I came into my apartment, and all these women were still there. 
they all got up and they started hugging me. I'm like, whoa, what's we've been praying for you for the last nine months. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's a rare thing that God uses just one person to bring someone through the entire process of coming to faith, isn't it? Sometimes he does, but usually he orchestrates all kinds of people and places and circumstances and experiences and divine appointments to draw people to himself. Apollos watered, I planted, but God brings the growth, right? It's team-oriented. And that does a couple of things, as I said. First of all, it frees us from individually carrying the burden of leading everyone we know through every step of the process to the point of receiving Christ. We are more often than not just one link in a long chain of divine appointments that God brings about. An evangelist for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship put it this way. He said, a person's coming to Christ is like a chain with many links. There, the first link, middle links, and the last link. They're all together to form this chain. There are many influences and conversations that precede a person's decision to convert to Christ. I know the jog of being the first link at times, a middle link usually, and occasionally, he says, I know the last link. God has not called me to only be the last link, the one that actually leads people across that line in a prayer. He has called me to be faithful and to love all people and to be whatever link he makes me in that chain. It's great to know that you and I can be a link in the chain that God is forging in someone's eternal salvation experience, isn't it? You are a link, but don't be the weakest link. The second implication is that we must be intentional about linking up with others in order to bring people to Christ. This is where the gifts and the strength of the whole entire church body comes in to play. You know, our living nativity that we did for 20 plus years was always an intentional strategic event to coalesce all the different people and gifts in this church to work together to help people reach their spiritually lost friends and relatives for Christ. Shoulder to shoulder is another such thing, opportunity coming up in June that was just mentioned that you can be involved in in that. On May 19th, we have the opportunity to link up with Christian brothers and sisters all over this entire region in bringing the gospel to thousands through Franklin Graham's Decision America coming to Portland. You're going to be involved in that? You should. At least invite a friend. At least pray for people. Go to it yourself. What part are you going to play in that? Here's a ready-made thing for you to just walk right in and be involved in, and all you got to do is be yourself, be a friend to somebody, and say, hey, you want to come to this thing with me? You never know what kind of eternity that is going to unleash in someone's life. Effective relational evangelism, it's authentic, it's natural, it's personal, it's verbal, it's process-oriented, it's team-oriented, and finally, it is others-oriented. It puts others first. In other words, if we're going to gain people's trust and realize an opportunity to share the truth of Christ with them, we need to put the other person first, not our evangelistic agenda. Don't make people your project. They're not just another checkmark to be placed on your spiritual scorecard. The whole biblical purpose behind relational evangelism is that people's souls matter to God and they should matter to us. 
if they really matter to us, then we must take into consideration their interests, their hobbies, their schedules. It means hearing them out before offering our own thoughts. It means taking a genuine interest in them and caring for their needs. The old cliche is true, you know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. If you're sincerely concerned about their soul, you're going to care about them as an individual and not look at them as just another notch in your evangelistic belt. People need to know by the words that you say and the way that you act that they matter to you regardless of whether or not they agree with the Christian message. They have to matter to you because they matter to Christ. And people are hungry for that kind of relationship in which someone genuinely cares about them. You know, that's why sinners gravitated to Christ, isn't it? That's why why the sick and the poor and the outcasts felt free enough to approach Jesus because he had compassion on them. Whether they received him or not, do we? Do we imitate that kind of Jesus? Just remember... I've said this so many times, it's not my statement, I got it from another pastor, but you have never locked eyes with someone who doesn't matter to the Father. You never have. If they matter to him, they ought to matter to us. So our Christianity becomes contagious when our confusion begins to clear. And now that we've exposed some of the personal misconceptions we have about evangelism and explored the biblical prescription for it, there's one more thing we need to do, and this stands on its own. Exercise the practical application of evangelism. If God has commissioned us to reach people with the gospel, and he has... And one of the most effective ways to do it is through the development of meaningful, redemptive relationships with those that we want to reach, then we need to be intentional about that, don't we? Intentional about it. I'm going to give you a tool that's going to help you become intentional about it. And it works. We used to call it an impact list, okay? But I'm going to change the word on that. I'm going to make it a hope list. A hope list. It's a hope list. It's basically, it gets us beyond the generic to the specific. So what I want you to do this week for your homework, I want you to carefully and prayerfully consider the people in your life to whom you could give a concentrated effort in an effort to bring them to the next step in the evangelism process, okay? Again, this is not a project. This is stuff that we should be doing on a regular basis anyway. I'm just prompting you with a tool. So take a piece of paper and write hope list on the top of it and pray about who God wants you to put on that list. Write down a couple of people. And we're not talking about other Christians. We're talking about non-believers. Some of you might not have any names to put on that list. And that ought to put something in your head. I need to be out in the world more. Okay? So list the names of those people that God gives you. And please note that this list is going to change as these people become Christians or move out of your sphere of influence. 
The list, therefore, should be an ongoing part of your lifelong evangelism strategy. Now, remember, this is a no-strings-attached thing. These are people that God's leading you to develop friendships and relationships with. Let them know by your word and action that they matter to you. Again, whether or not they agree with your message about Christ. The important thing is that you are intentional about listening to God's leadership and guidance and the Holy Spirit's promptings about who he wants you to interact with for the sake of the kingdom. Amen? Amen. Amen. In your bulletins, you have this little yellow sheet. It says, praying for the people on your list. And begin to pray for these people on your cross-out impact and put hope. You know, if you're on Amazon or if you go to one of these online Walmart or whatever, you can, you can develop a whole wish list, right? This isn't a wish list. This is a hope list. This is, this is what God is doing in us. But pray about these people on this list. Use it as part of your prayer time every day. And if you don't have a prayer time every day, well, you got one now. Right? This will be a good start for something even more important, um, and that is a daily devotional time with God that, you, that we all need to have. All right? Great. So, Father in heaven, thank you so much for the real basic stuff about what you have left us to do since your resurrection. We celebrated Easter, Lord God, last week, and we celebrated it exuberantly. We love you. And we believe in you. We believe that you rose from the grave, that we might have an eternal home with you. But we also believe that you didn't leave it there. You left us here to carry that message forward. Until the day we die or you come to take us home. Help us to do that. And let it begin, Lord God, with giving us names of people that you would have us relate to this week. We pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.